Today's guest should be a household name for anyone working in media and marketing. I was fortunate to work with him for many years and found him to be a wonderful colleague and really one of the great people in this business. He was once, and perhaps still is, considered the most quoted man in media. He's been interviewed by nearly every major press outlet you can think of. If you don't know his name, shame on you. It's quite simple. When he speaks, people listen. He's Brad Adgate, and this is Back by Popular Demand. Hello, sir. Welcome to the pod. Hey, thanks, Dennis. I'm so glad you're doing this. Thanks, Brad. Um, I'm having fun with it so far. But you know, this is only my second start of the season, uh, so we'll see how I do today. But um, if it makes you feel any better, I did throw a pretty good bullpen session this week. Well, we'll see. (laughs) No, I'm only kidding. You know, I don't think it's over till it's over, to quote Yogi Berra. I know, and I probably just jinxed myself. But um, it's funny. It's, It's cool seeing you this way. Normally, I was thinking about it. I always seem to see you at the lobby of one of the many upfront presentations that we all had to go to every every May. And it, without fail, every time I was in New York, I would I would walk into one of the theaters and there was Brad Adgate sitting in the lobby and you and I would would you know talk for a few minutes. But this is a lot less stressful and we don't need to dress up. So in my intro for you, um, I talk about how you were once considered and you you might still be considered the one of the most quoted people in media. So let's let's take a step back. How did that come about? Because I know that when I was working with you at Horizon um, everything I heard about you is that you were like one of the most quoted people in media. Is that true? And who was the, who did the measurement? I'm curious. Uh, yeah, that was true. I think un- until they stopped doing it, um, I, I, advertising age did it. Okay. They had something called, uh, ad talk and it was some, they used some sort of service to measure, uh, you know, how many, you know, who said what and how many times. And so, a couple of years, I was second or third, and there were some other agency people. But for about three years, from I, th- I think it was like around 2006 to 2008, I was first. And then Ed 8 stopped doing it. So how that. did it feel to, I mean, honestly, jokes aside, how did it feel to be somebody in that position where, you know, you were one of the most quoted people in the industry? I mean, how does that make you feel knowing that so many people turn to you to listen to you? I, I, it was kind of strange because I never thought, you know, it's like me talking to you, only like, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are also are also doing, you know, are also in, in that. So it's like kind of being a, a radio DJ without really knowing that people are listening to you. So people would, would come and kind of treat you like, oh, my gosh, you're Brad Adgate. You know, I've heard that and blah, blah, blah. And I never really thought like that. I was just like this. I'm answering your question. I don't know who's going to listen to it or how many or, you know, what have you. So it, that was kind of kind of odd. But, you know, I, I will say this. I don't know if you at Horizon or not, but the coolest thing I did, I was interviewed by John Oliver on The Daily Show. And that was I did fun. not know that. When was that? That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, they called me up. You know, sometimes when you get called up, you know, and and the uh, caller ID goes one 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 one, it goes like nine one, so you don't know who it is. Like they blocked the caller, and this was some some producer from the Daily Show, and he says we're doing a piece on investigative investigative journalism with uh, John Oliver, and we'd like you to be a part of it, and and that's uh, and that was like around November, I guess, of twenty twelve. Uh, and then, you know, they came in and it was just really strange. And, you know, I, I did all the all the background things, you know, I, like in notes and stuff, like you're cramming for a test. 
And I, I, these guys came over with a camera crew. And first of all, John Oliver's a great guy. Um, and, and, you know, I gave him my notes. I said, you want my notes? Cause we, cause they would say, we don't know what we're going to do. We don't know what to ask. I said, you want my notes? And he said, we'd love your notes. So he, he looked at me saying, you're such a madman, like I guess on the TV show. And we did, you know, I did like about two, two and a half hours. You know, it's all, it, it, it's all, um, ad libbed. I mean, they don't, they don't tell you what to say, but you know what they're trying to do. Yep. So you just kind of go along with that. And that's such a, um, speaking of John Oliver, such a small world because I'm not sure if you still watch the show. I'm a huge fan of that show. And, uh, he did a whole bit this past season about Danbury, Connecticut. Um, and I grew up in Danbury. I mean, I lived in Bethel, which is the next town over, but Bethel and Danbury are pretty much, you know, interchangeable. But, uh, he took a lot of shots at Danbury and he did a whole bit at the end of the season where he actually went to that plant in Danbury, which was pretty hysterical. And Meg Ryan's from Bethel too. Don't leave that Good out. job, Brad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Meg Ryan went to my high school. She graduated, uh, 10 years before me. And I think, um, I believe her name is actually Peggy Hira. I believe that's her real name. And Meg Ryan was the stage name, obviously. So there you go. I'll tell you the most famous person from my high school, the only person to show up on the, on the cover of sports illustrated from, from my high school was Carol Alt, which tells you, yeah, which tells you, I I graduated with her brother, Tony, which tells you, you know, our athletes were really bad, but we had some good looking women. I want to talk today about a lot of a lot of the industry um, changes that are happening uh, this past year, particularly. But before we do that, I guess let's take a step back and talk a little bit about your career. And um, and I've never asked you this before, but how did you get into this field? Like what, what did you know that you wanted to work in media and research or were you did you fall into it like many of us did? I, I fell into it. I um you know, I was a history poli sci major, you know, liberal arts, and I came, you know, went to school down in Jacksonville, Florida, and then I, uh, you know, came back to Long Island where I grew up, and uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So my dad sent me to the Stevens Institute of Technology to take uh, aptitude test on for a vocation, and I went to a battery of tests, you know, and and. I know that, and they matched it with people who had similar answers and where they worked. And there were 67 professions, and 67th was a dental hygienist. I remember that was that. number 67. I was, okay. Yeah, was, yeah, I'll never, you know, when people clean my teeth, I'd say, I couldn't do that. But, um, but, but, you know, in the top 10 was advertising. And, uh, and I thought, you know, okay. And I just kind of fell into research. You know, I had a, I, I, my brother was editing TV commercials and his partner had um, just dealt with all these agencies and gave me a list of like 40 of them. So I, you know, this was before emails or things or before, you know, LinkedIn or any of that. So I just walked the streets of Manhattan and I got hired at a small shop, Case and McGrath in research and they lost uh, their big men in account, like, thanks, I needed that. And, and I wound up, you know, uh, on the street for a little bit and then uh, not the first time. And then I went to uh, <laughs> and then I went to uh, gray advertising and I worked for Helen Johnston, who was, you know, the top media research director. And I backwards Bill Vogel, which you would have loved, Dennis. They had one account, Miller Beer. Well, my best my best uh, my best industry friends were from that time. To okay. this day, we're all like it was like it was like post college. You know, we just drank beer. We were, were sports. You know, occasionally we worked, and that was fun. 
And I know, you know, you spent a good chunk of your career at Horizon. Um, I I did some research on LinkedIn. I think you were there for like 16, 17 years, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Seven, I think 17 years. Yeah. Okay. And I overlapped with you for about six years. um, And that's when I got to know you. And that's when I met you at Horizon. So one question I have for you on on Horizon, and and this question will make Bill happy, but, you know, you, you were there for that long. You obviously saw the transformation of what was when I got there, a fairly small independent agency, um, you know, had loyal client base, but certainly not a, not a huge player. And now you look at them now in 2021, still independent, however, a, a massive player in the industry. How was that? Like, what was that like to watch that transformation? Well, it, it was a, a couple of things because that transformation was occurring at the same time that digital media was exploding, you know, so it really was a very small, kind of mom and pop shop in, in 1998, you know, I mean, Geico, well, it's a huge client now. They had Geico, they had it for a few years at the time. Yep. And then they weren't big spenders at the, you know, on that, I mean, you know, through, through, uh, uh, I, I, you know, through Horizon Media and then through, I guess the creative shop, which at the time was the Martin agency in Richmond, it just, it just kind of, um, it just kind of blew up. And, and once, you know, one of the questions you want to get a bigger account, they would say, well, you know, how can you handle a $600 million account? And then they'd say, well, you know, we have Geico, which, yep. which they grew themselves. And so from there, you know, you got things like Cap One and, and, and they got onto bigger pitches. Um, I think the Achilles heel was, was the global, you know, they would do like a new business pitch and then they'd say, this is great. Now, what do you have in China? And, you know, yep. like, uh, you know, and that kind of, so they, they kind of created, a, there was an independent ad hoc group of independent shops or agencies and Horizon joined that. You know, it's funny in the last 24 hours, I actually talked to three different ex Horizon media employees, Ankit Pajaj, Charlie Legg, and Matt Leibel. Um, and when I told them I was interviewing you, they were all very happy about that. And they wanted me to send along their, their well wishes and to remind you, what an impact you had in their careers. I think that's pretty awesome. Oh, that's great. Tell them I said hi next time you see them. I don't, I don't talk to that many. I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. I wrote something for Forbes, my most popular post, because I'm a Forbes contributor now. I write about yep, five articles on media and advertising. And I wrote something saying, when a recession comes, don't stop advertising. And Forbes kind of said, hey, you said that an email blast to the contributors, say, anyone want to write about the economic recession? So I said, okay, how about I write this? And they said, this is perfect. And this was written about September of 2019 when there were talks about a recession and the yield curve was inverted and all, you know, all this other stuff and all these doomsayers. So I wrote it then and you know, it got about five, 6,000 views. And then the virus hit. And the yep. pandemic hit, and now it's like 120,000 views, you know, gets wow. an editor's choice. And what's really interesting is people who worked at Horizon Media contacted me because their boss was forwarding that Forbes article that I wrote. And they would open up and say, Proud I know this guy. Yep. You know, and so, so it was really fun that they, that, uh, they came and reached out and just said, hey, I read your article. Well, I've been reading your Forbes pieces for quite some time now, and I thoroughly enjoy them, and I highly recommend everybody else doing the same thing. But, you know, Brad, I was thinking about it the other day, that if the streaming wars were a video game, then 2020 was probably the equivalent of advancing to the next round. You know, like when I played Space Invaders when I was a kid, whenever I got to that next level, I always felt like the aliens were a bit more ferocious and, uh, you know, had a little bit more giddy up. And I think that's kind of what happened this past year. It was a bit more stressful and challenging. We saw numerous launches, FX on Hulu, uh, Quibi, which died a quick death, as we all know, 
And then the big ones being HBO Max and NBC Universal's Peacock, a very crowded market that got far more competitive. How would you assess HBO Max and the Peacock launches thus far? Well, I, you know, I think both of them, you know, it's funny. I'm, I'm, I'm going to post an article on Forbes tomorrow about churn rates. And when you look at churn rates, the, the, the four, there's four like big players uh, in, in streaming. There's Netflix, there's Hulu. Uh, there's Amazon Prime Video, which comes with, you know, being Amazon Prime. And the fourth one is actually Disney Plus, which is a relatively new launch. And their churn rates are really low. You know, and I talked to a guy from Parks Associates and he said, you know, they, they have uh, equity uh, and, and they have content. And, and you know, they have they, – they, you know, they're, they're going to lose some uh, – some subscribers, but they're, but they're pretty well set, you know. I mean, their churn rates and churn is people who just cancel their subscription yep. for whatever yep. reason. Primarily, it's cost or content that they don't watch, and why am I paying for this? But the other ones have a have a higher churn rate, and you know, one of the things that's in the article that that was pointed out was, you know, you get these people who are cord cutters, and they're doing it for cost. You know, they don't want to pay all this. But then if you get all these things, like all these, you know, VOD, SVOD, subscriber VOD uh, services, and you get all of those, and, you know, Discovery Plus was just launched in January. Yep. Paramount Plus, you know, Viacom CBS is rebranding that, and, and it's yep. going to going to be you're paying as much for your cable for your pay cable subscription that you did, you know, that, that you're doing for, for these SVODs. So, you know, we've seen this with, we've seen this before with other, you know, industries, in, especially in digital. There's going to be a shakeout at some point. I mean, I don't, I mean, I think the winners are going to be the four more established ones, at least now. I had done a streaming deep dive this past year, and I had read that the average American subscribes to three streaming services. And I guess if I were launching a streaming service right now, that would really scare me because. Look at Netflix, Amazon, and Hulu. They're all already well entrenched. And I would add Disney Plus to that list, given how successful that launch has been. So how does that bode for new players like Discovery Plus and Paramount Plus? Well, it comes down to pricing and content. I mean, you know, Discovery Plus is, you know, they're saying they got 50,000 plus shows and it's like five bucks a month. Uh and so, you know, that's something, the price point is there. I think Disney had a great price point, yep. uh, you know, when they were launched. And I think, you know, an HBO Max is like $15 or something for a monthly fee. So I, I, it's, it's um, there's all kind of like a, a tangled things because, you know, it's kind of like a, these concentric circles that, that, you know, streaming video, you know, what's it going to do to the cable or what's it done to cable? What's it going to do to movie theater attendance? What's I mean, all these different Industries are being impacted by that, but to get back to your question, Paramount Plus, look, if they have they have content, you know, yep. they they're going to have content. It comes down to the pricing, and marketing, and promotions, and you know, it's this is a this is going to be a, as much money is going to be spent, I think, on promoting, or almost as much money in promoting as it is on content, whether it's acquired or original so i you know licensing fees you know it's interesting that the office is the most popular show i know <laughs> online yeah. i mean that's yep. that's crazy we've all seen it umpteen times so i i, I think it's I, I it's kind of early to say but i think those it, it, it's it's it, if they can if they can maintain a, a, a strong and grow their subscriber base and it's easier said than done, I, I think they'll be fine. Well, the bottom line is that you have to give people shows that they just can't get anywhere else, 
What I thought Disney Plus did extremely well at launch is that they did so with a signature series. They launched The Mandalorian, which was a huge piece of IP. You know, it's John Favreau, and they included that heavily in their marketing for the Disney Plus platform. And what I noticed with HBO Max is that they didn't really take that path. They they had great content and a huge library at launch, but they did not have that big signature series. And even more recently, I've noticed a lot of marketing for The Stand uh, based on the Stephen King book and that reboot. And I found it really interesting that CBS All Access decided to release that now as opposed to saving it and including that as their signature show when they rebrand to Paramount+. Plus. So how essential do you think it is to include a temple like that at launch? Yeah, I, I think that's really I, – I saw, uh, again, because I just wrote this article, it's fresh in my, main, my mind, Hub Research, which is a, a you know, research company up, up here in uh, the Hub. Um, they, uh, they say that one-third of people who subscribe to video service do so to watch one program. And so to your point, which is, which is right on, you know, they, they have created like appointment viewing. Yep. I, th- I think, I think the key is, is, is kind of doing what Netflix has been doing is just constantly, you know, roll things out and, and, you know, whether it's here or, you know, produced here or it's original or whether it's acquired from, you know, like Canada, like Shit's Creek, I, I can say that right. Or Derry or- Girls from Northern Ireland, which is, which is really very, very funny. Yeah, uh, and and so I think you know putting putting unique content on and that hope you know hopefully uh, something will stick and I think that's and keep them in the uh, in the ecosystem right as opposed to having them come in to check out the stand for example and then yeah. you know discontinuing their their membership and maybe coming back later I know a lot of people used to do that with HBO and the Sopranos would come along they would they would you know reignite their subscription watch the season and then they would bail again so um, you, it'll be interesting you know, to see kind of how that how that takes shape with these new platforms. You know, that's that's my kicker line in this article yeah, is, um, you know, what, what Forbes has been doing for their contributors, which is wonderful, is teaching you, because we're not journalists, and so they're teaching you how to write an article. You know, what's the lead? What's the title? My favorite is the nut graph, which is the nutshell paragraph. It's the second paragraph. And lead is kind of like an introduction. Yep. The, nut, the nut graph is kind of like a movie trailer where you kind of look at things in a broad perspective of, of, of what you're going to say, then comes, you know, the, what you're going to, what you say that tied into the nut graph. And then you have the kicker line, which is something kind of related, but you don't really cover in any of this. And that was, well, you know, trends been around with HBO and Showtime, to your point, Sopranos, you know, Homeland, all, all that stuff. And, and so that, you know, you kind of have to think <laughs> about how, how to do that, but it's, it's really, it's really fun that, that, you know, cause, and the best nut graph was Romeo and Juliet. By the sixth line, you know they were going to die, but you still read it. It's been a sobering year for media. The pandemic exposed several legacy businesses, movie going being one of the big ones, you know, given the quarantines and the movie theater closures, had a devastating impact on box office. And two major headlines came from that. One was the agreement reached between AMC theaters and Universal Pictures regarding theatrical windowing. And then more recently, right before the holidays, Warner Brothers dropped a bomb where they announced that they're going to release its entire 2021 slate in theaters and on HBO Max simultaneously. Both big issues. Uh, let's discuss one at a time. AMC and Universal, why was that such a significant announcement? Well, you know, the fact is that, um, it, well, a couple of things. One is money, you know, shared revenue. And yep. it's always, you know, it's like deep sort of follow the money. And typically, 
you know, the movie, the, stu- the the theaters get a certain percentage, usually roughly half or a little over half in the first few opening week weekends. And then, you know, the studios take a bulk of that after that. And then they get everything like the DVD sales or, yep. or you know, HBO or, or what, you know, or, or later on streaming. And there's always been a window. For, for that and this you know and, and it's usually not available for home video until 75 to 90 days after the theatrical release and that's been typically it and and what uh universal did and they also with amc and i think they did with cinemark and cineplex they did a few other theaters too and within 17 days so in other words first three weekends it's available in theaters and then after that it's gonna. You could watch it. It's called PVOD, which is premium video on demand. We have all these VODs now. Well, you and I both know that the media industry loves its acronyms. But I think a, a good example of this is the recent Tom Hanks film, News of the World. Before Christmas, I saw promos for the film driving people to theaters. And I had to remind myself that movie theaters are actually open around the country because I, I live in California and the theaters are still closed here. And then uh, last weekend, as I was watching the NFL playoffs, I saw promos for the film. But this time it was driving to SVOD. And I had to say to myself, geez, that's a really fast turn from promoting cinema to now promoting video on demand. And I guess it just raises the question on whether or not people will choose to avoid theaters and just stay home and pay for the film a different way. I mean, what do you think? Oh, I, I you know, I, I completely agree with you. I think it's not for everyone. I mean, there's a communal experience. So yep. some people are going to go back to the movie theaters. And I think the theaters are going to try and do everything they can to make to make you safe. But, you know, if you don't feel like spending $12 for a glass of white wine and some stale popcorn and you could watch it watch it in the comforts of your own home and you know people have huge home theaters and big screens and surround sound why wouldn't you i mean it, it's a little costly it's like twenty dollars yeah. uh, if some of them a little more than that but you know if you feel more comfortable doing that and it's a movie you want to see I, I, I you know i i kind of said that in 2019 we're just going to be high watermarks for uh for a long time in movie going, but you know, movie attendance has been dropping, you know, through the years and box office has maintained because they're, they're asking more money to go to a movie. I think the average ticket price is, is over $9. And, uh, you know, the fun fact is, is that, um, 1946 remains the highest year for movie attendance. Really? <laughs> yeah. You know, right after the war, people were home. There was no television, there so was, they uh, yeah, they went to, that was it. So that's a record. I, I don't remember what the number is, but, you know, last year, I think, or, or 2019 now, it was, it was over a billion tickets that they sold, which was good. And I think, you know, China is going to uh, probably this year will surpass the U.S. in box office. I mean, they've been creeping up in years. So, you know, that's one of the big things with Mulan you know, was how important the Chinese theatrical market is now to the studios. So it's, it's, uh, it used to be the UK was second and now it's, it's, uh, it's been China. Let's talk about Warner brothers. Cause they certainly dropped a big bomb right before the holidays, uh, that sent shockwaves through the industry when they announced that they're, uh, they're going to release its entire 21 slate of films, both in theaters, as well as on HBO max simultaneously. Um, this is a big deal because Warner brothers is a major studio with a huge slate of films. And, it certainly was questioned by those in the talent part of the industry, as well as uh, obviously folks who run movie theaters. So, you know, you can question whether or not uh, they handle things the right way in terms of uh, whether or not they included their partners in those conversations and certainly those decisions. But I ask you, do you think it was the right business decision? Um, well, yes, but I think 
you know, it's it's it sounds when the announcement was made that it really caught the movie theaters flat footed. Like they yeah. had no idea this was coming. And you know, Jason Kylar, who's now heading up Time Warner, came from Hulu. Was was a you yep. know worked with that. He was kind of like the Tito trying to manage all those different factions of corporate ownership that they had. And he's a pretty smart guy. But I can see that. Look, you pointed it out. Warner Brothers is a is a great. It's the second biggest studio behind Disney. Yep. And it's kind of going to like, not you know, it's going to like an SVOD that's not even on the radar for for some. So, I think what he's trying to look at is saying, okay, how do I compete with Netflix? How do I compete uh, with Amazon Prime Video, Disney Plus? I you know, it's it's to it's to put on like you know these blockbuster movies that, you know, are going to be released at the same time. And I mean, I don't know what type of financial deal was made with the studios or with the theaters or the studios. I mean, I mean, like Universal did, but I, I yep. would, I could see, I could see that shaking up and, you know, they're saying it's just for a year, but trust me, if this works, it's going to be, it's going to be more than a, you know. Well, that was my next year. question is that yeah. I know I've read that too, that this was a 21 proposition only, but I have a hard time, yeah. you know, thinking that, that this isn't going to continue. Yeah, no, I, I I do too, and and I think the other point is is that um, how many movies now have been pushed back to twenty twenty two twenty two? I mean, they moved the the the, the uh, you know the Bond movie like three times. Okay, I want to talk about the state of linear television as well as the sports marketplace, but let's take a quick break first. This episode of Back by Popular Demand is sponsored by the Waffle Company, the first ever get and give pet bed company in the world which means for every bed sold they donate a bed to a shelter dog in need how amazing is that those who know me will tell you how much i value animal rescue and i adore my two boxer rescues sammy and gabby and believe me when i say that they love their waffle bed my dog dad stock went up big time when their waffle arrived not a day goes by when one of them isn't sprawled across their waffle gnawing away on one of their chew toys or enjoying one of the many naps they take every day Waffle beds are made with organic cotton canvas and filled with pure K-pop cotton, which is lightweight, hypoallergenic, and eco-friendly. The beds come with two washable exterior layers that are very easy to reassemble once clean. I gotta say, every time I wash my waffle, I kind of want to lay down on it. Look, I love my dogs. You love your dogs. And we'll pretty much do anything in the world for them. So get them a waffle. By doing so, you're ensuring a shelter dog can also sleep better at night. I can't think of anything better. Order them at waffleco.com. It's spelled just like the breakfast waffle, but with an O. Again, that's waffleco.com. The Waffle Company is based in Columbus, Ohio, and all of its products are made with great care right here in the USA. Okay, let's get back to the pod. So, you know, we're, st- we're about to start year two of the pandemic, uh, which is hard to believe, and, you know, certainly... <laughs> The quarantine and, and staying at home has played a huge role in, um, I guess, the, the growth of TV and streaming this past year. So let's talk about like who who are the big winners and losers of this past year in terms of television. Um, I would think that the news network saw huge gains. I'm I'm assuming the streaming platforms all saw big gains as well. But can you tell me from your perspective, like really who stood out? Well, you just said the two that came to mind. I uh, okay. you know. News, uh, you know, the news networks, the top, you know, Fox News, MSNBC and CNN, they were all up percent double digits in audience. Uh, You know, I don't know if you can expect that 
this year, I, I mean, I think there's got to be some news fatigue, yep. uh, you know, going forward. I mean, it's already like I, I, I don't want to watch this anymore. It's too – I've watched too much of it. It's too upsetting, whatever the reasons are. Yep. Uh, and so I think that at some point with a, with a more – hopefully things get calm – uh, it's going to be uh, it's going to be very difficult, I think, to get to get the huge numbers that that they were getting over the past few years. So, you know, the election and impeachment and pandemic and protests and rallies and you know it was a it was a chock full year. Um, I, I think also streaming. What was interesting about streaming is that it's not it's not like a it's not an eighteen to thirty four eighteen to forty nine demo anymore. Nielsen did a study uh, during the pandemic that found out that, you know, old people are now starting to uh, to watch more streaming video, people 50 plus. So I, I hope I didn't insult you there. I'm getting very close, Brad. Very close. Too close. Well, you'll soon be irrelevant to the TV industry if that, if that makes you feel better. <laughs> I do feel better. Thanks. <laughs> and so, and so it was a, uh, you know, they saw a huge spike in, in 50 plus. And that's, you know, television is mostly 50 plus. You look at the median age of all these shows and on prime time, and they're all, they're all no longer 18 to 49, even though that's the target audience. They're all in the 50s and 60s. And I think once these people who migrate from, from linear TV to streaming, well, who's going to be watching television? You know, and, and, and I don't, you know, and I think once these people start watching streaming video, they're not going to stop. Yep. You know, it's it's going to be something that's very addictive. It's easy if they know how to use the interface and it's content they want to see. Let's talk about the state of linear networks for a second. You know, I worked for linear cable networks both at Turner as well as National Geographic over the past decade. And, and while the pandemic clearly impacted everybody in a positive way uh, with viewership up this past year, uh, linear cable networks are in a somewhat compromising position. I mean, where do you see them in three to five years? They're screwed. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, a couple of things. Especially you have cord cutting. Um, you know, I, I kind of wrote a piece saying the rise and fall of cable TV on Forbes. And not that I'm Edward Gibbon, I'm writing about Rome or William Shire in the Third Reich. But, you know, you look you look back. I said the golden years is between 2010 and 2015. You know, they, they were getting $10 billion in the upfronts. They had uh, 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 Emmy-winning shows. They had the highest-rated show with The Walking Dead. Uh, you know, they, they they were getting record audiences for, for sports uh, and, and news, you know. And then, like, in 2015 – you know the wheels started to come off the cart, and I and that of course coincided with with the rise of uh, or the beginnings of streaming video as a as an alternative uh, video source. And you know if you're Comcast, I mean, and and where are you going to where are you going to invest your programming dollars on on Peacock or USA and Sci-Fi or Bravo? Yeah. You know it's it's all going that way, and so. You know, there's not going to be any original content like there used to be. You know, no more Monk or The Closer or some of these shows where, you know, it was appointment viewing and the finale was it was a television event. And, and it just shows you just how fluid cable is uh, or the industry is and how it's impacted cable because, I, you know, you, you lose you, – they're losing a lot of revenue. I mean, big media companies bought them in the 90s because they were cash cows, and they're not cash cows anymore. I started to see that shift in my last year at National Geographic. You know, we used to develop in, in Greenlight Series, you know, earmarked to be tent poles for our linear networks. And once Disney acquired the company, some of those shows, you know, The Right Stuff is a good example. 
were then earmarked for Disney Plus. I mean, I get it. I understand how streaming needs to be the priority, but still, it's a it's a bit bittersweet. And this is happening across the board. It, it's it's across uh, it's across everything. And in that article I wrote, the rise and fall of cable. I, I really liked my kicker line because in 2015, I said AT and T acquired Directv for about 50 billion dollars. They can't even get 20 billion for it now. You know, five right. five years, six years later. I mean, they're trying to unload it. And and they're having a you know I think they're having a hard time getting the price that they're that they'd like to get but it's it's certainly a lost leader. I want to switch gears for a minute and talk about sports. Uh, clearly, a strange year with the pandemic. Uh, there was a reduced MLB season. Uh, the NHL and NBA um, held its playoffs inside bubbles, and the NFL you know did miraculously finish the season, although not without some pretty serious scheduling challenges. You recently reported that the NFL ratings were actually down this year. I think you said around 7%. Why is that? Well, I think a couple of reasons. Uh, obviously, some of that was the pandemic. You know, I think the case was like on Thursday night on Thanksgiving, the game was canceled. I think it was Pittsburgh and Baltimore. And they, yep. they had to reschedule three times to like that, that great time to watch football Wednesday afternoon at the <laughs> 5. It was the first time in the NFL season this, uh, that they played a game every day of the week. Which yep. has never happened I read that. with all of that, but I think a lot of it was politics. I think in 2016 also uh, was a big political year, and once uh, after election day, viewers picked up in 2016. I think the first nine weeks they were down like I think nine percent from the previous year, and I think this year also it it was was off a bit, and also you know. Um, Kickoff Classic, which was a pretty good number, you know, it did like I think over twenty. There's about eighteen show games that did over twenty million viewers. That was one of them. That was on September 10th, and that was like called the Super Equinox because there were, you know, you could have sat and watched LeBron James, uh, and you could watch Serena Williams in the U.S. Open. You could watch Patrick Mahomes, Kansas City Chiefs. There was college football. There was Major League Baseball. There was, like I said, tennis, the NBA. Uh, those are like about nine different sports being televised that day on, uh, on, on, you know, with, with, with the NFL. And it was just like, wow. Well, last weekend we had the wildcard games, um, which was dubbed the NFL super wildcard weekend because there were six games between Saturday and Sunday. Um, I watched all of them, but man, that was, that was tough. I, I love watching football, but I was, I was kind of getting a little numb there by the end. Um, I pegged that Bears Saints game as my nap game, and sure enough, I did take a snooze during the first quarter. Interesting point about that game is that CBS Viacom flexed its, I guess I would call it synergy muscles, and they simulcast that game on Nickelodeon, clearly trying to reach a, a younger demographic. Uh, the game featured you know, in-game graphics, and the field got slimed, and SpongeBob SquarePants was integrated. Pretty interesting stuff. Uh, do you think that will continue? We'll see more of those kinds of synergies going forward. No, I, I didn't see any. I know two, it got a two million average. Uh, yeah, two million on okay. Nickelodeon is 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 a lot. I mean, Nickelodeon's one of those cable networks that are getting like Disney Channel, just just getting bashed in, in numbers. Yep. And uh, and you know, I read someone on uh, uh, one of my Twitter feeds. Someone said, "Hey, Nickelodeon." My daughter said. Dad, I can't come. I'm watching the football game. And my daughter has never said that before because she was watching these players get slimed. And I know young Sheldon was explaining what, uh, you know, offsides was to, okay. <laughs> to pop up. And just anytime there was a penalty, you know, explaining it to them. But, um, yeah, I think that's going to come. I think, I think that's happening. You know, the contracts expire. The ESPN contract expires at the end of 
next season. And then the other networks are going to be, uh, you know, their contract expires in 2022. And I, you know, I think the NFL, is, uh, it's not necessarily going to go to digital. There might be some digital packages. I know Amazon Prime yep. uh, televised a game that I think got 4.8 million viewers. And with the over the air, it came 5.9 in the two markets where the teams were playing or the home the teams participating. I, I think it's, um, I, you know, as, as, and I know the NFL ratings are off, but it's more than three times the audience of what, what a program does in prime time. Well, that's what I was going to say for some context. The ratings are down, but at the same time, you know, an average NFL game is still doing far bigger numbers than any normal prime time show, right? Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I, I think that the, I, I think they're going to get a huge, you know, um, they're going to get a huge upswing or a huge increase in the rights fees. I mean, the broadcast networks pay about one billion each, and I think ESPN is uh, closer to two billion. I think it's like one point nine billion. All of them are going to, you know, all of them are going to get a, a sizable increase. And I, you know, Dennis, I, I do think that uh, there might be some digital. I think, you know, I think Disney would like to have Sunday night football. I think ABC would like to televise the Super Bowl, which they not, which they don't do. So I think there might be some shifts in some of the packages and things like that. They're going to add, uh, you know, your, your point of a. Uh, of playoffs, there are 13 playoff games this year, you know, compared to 11, and those games typically do do pretty strong. Um, you know, leading up to the Super Bowl, that they'll do 30, 40, 50 million as as the playoffs progress, and and so I I think that um you, you know I, I, and next year there's going to be a 17th game. Yeah, you know, right. it's going to be so. Year. So that's another week of selling advertising time so uh you, you know the, the nfl is just gonna go uh you know it's, it's business as usual and the numbers could easily bounce back next year okay we've talked enough about media and have probably depressed our listeners i'm really sorry about that everybody brad let's talk about baseball it's your favorite game it's my favorite game i've never met anybody in my life who can spew out any nugget of baseball trivia like you can i mean it's pretty unbelievable you're like Dustin Hoffman in Rain Man, and I mean that in the best possible way. When did your love of the game start? Oh boy, uh, when I when I played Little League. Yeah, you know, okay. I was on a really bad team, appropriately called the Mets, and I was. <laughs> and but I just you know I I just fell in love with baseball, you know, and I I just you know it's a it's a summer romance and football's a bunch of one night stands. <laughs> I've never heard of that before. I love that. Isn't that nice? Yeah, it's kind of very descriptive. Uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, and then I started. I started collecting autographs, and I still have them. You know, I used to write to baseball Hall of Famers. I'd have their home address, and um, you know, like Bill Dickey lived uh, twenty two Cheryl, twenty two Cheryl Heights, Little Rock, Arkansas. You know, I'd write to Bill Dickey, and I would send them. And, and Dizzy Dean lived in Wiggins, Mississippi, and Jackie Robinson in Stanford, Connecticut. So there's a, a guy up the block who's a little older than me, and he showed me his address book. And I would write a self-addressed stamped envelope and write a handwritten um, form letter. And I got like about 90% response rate. I mean, I have some great autographs of like Jimmy Fox and, and uh, you know, Mela. Marketers would kill for that kind of response rate, Brad. Well, Dennis, today they would say, yeah, you know, your index cards and $20, please. You know, here these guys were born, you know, they fought in World War One. Uh, you know, some of these guys, you know, I got, uh, it was just, it was just amazing. And I always kept them. And it was funny when Whitey Ford died, 
which this was a tough year for Hall of Famers. It was indeed. He, he lived 38 Schoolhouse Lane, Lake Success, New York, and I lived right near there. It was about 10 miles away. So I went on my, with a friend of mine, went on my Schwinn bike, and we rode to Whitey Ford's house. <laughs> awesome. And we knocked on the door and asked him if Whitey Ford. Whitey Ford was, and his wife answered and said, no, he's not in. The chairman of the board. That's fantastic. 38 Schoolhouse. I think, I think he still lived there at the end when he, when I read his obituary and he said he was, you know, he was from Lake Success, New York. So he was, you know, he was just, just, just there. But, but, um, yeah, so it's like that. And then I've been to every major league ballpark. Okay, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to bring that up. I remember each summer you and I would discuss which particular stadiums you were going to visit that season. Now, you've been to all of them, right? Well, the one I haven't been is the new one in Texas. Okay. You know, well, you because chance, with the world. Yeah, yeah. So. so I have a good excuse. Uh, and, and then uh, we started going in 1963 Ford Falcon Futura Convertible. And we drove out to Kansas City. And then we would start taking other people. My brothers wanted to go and then nephews. And, then, and we couldn't take the car anymore. So we'd rent something. We'd fly and rent. But it, it was really a lot of fun. And the question I get all the time is, what's my favorite ballpark? And I always say Pittsburgh. Go to PNC Park. Sit on the third base side on a night game in July. Watch the sunset behind you. Watch the steamboats on the Allegheny River. And watch the skyline just light up in front of you while the game's going on. Of course, you had to mention one of the ballparks that I haven't been to. You know, I think sometime last year I did the math and I, I realized that I've been to half the stadiums in the league. And that's not too bad. I mean, I still got time, but I've never made it to PNC. It's certainly on my short list. Well, I've told you how to do it the right way. Third base side. Third base side. You know, just just night game sometime late June, early July, and then Dennis, we started doing football. We did football, and we and we our favorite our favorite trip. My brother and I did is we went to an Ohio State game on Saturday night, the year they won the title. With your good friend uh, Zeke was the running back, uh, and then um, we went to uh, next day at one o'clock. We went to Cleveland to see the Browns play. Tampa Bay. And that night we went to uh, Pittsburgh. And so the Ravens, you know, Sunday night football. So we had three tailgates in about a 24 hour period. Uh, and what was great about the Pittsburgh game is they retired Joe Green's number. So they had all the old Steelers out there from, from the Super Bowl teams in the seventies, which is really a lot of fun. So you just had to mention Zeke, didn't you? What a sorry ass season for my Cowboys. Well, you know, I'll tell you the guy who lives, uh, lives next door to me is a, a, a big Eagles fan. And he, he had the best word for the NFC East this year. He called it a dumpster fire. <laughs> it was indeed. That fire burned hot all season long. Brad, before I let you go, I have a two-part question. Uh, one, what are you most proud of in your career? You know, I don't think I've ever asked you that before. And part two, what advice do you have for anyone starting out in this business? Okay. I guess the first thing you said is when, when you know, just the reputation you have because that's yep. important. And it really it really meant a lot when you mentioned, you know, Charlie Legg and 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 Ankit and uh, Matt Leibel. You know, that that that's you know, that really was like wow, you know, you you kinda interacted in a positive way, you know, you're not you're not an a hole and, and, and like that. I think for the second the second thing to, for entry level people or people enjoy just read just find out what's going on in the industry you know there are all sorts of free content that you could subscribe to online you know things like smart briefs that come from uh, you know the 4As or or the NCA all these different organizations you know read the trades read the business section 
I mean, I've—I'll be honest—I've read—I've read Business Week every issue since 1996. You know, businesses are all interrelated, and, and things that are happening somewhere else's could impact. You know, advertising and media. You—you don't—you don't know. You know, so I—I—I I, 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 so I do a lot of reading in between. You know, my nonfiction books that you know. I've done some guest lecturing this past year, and I'm quite impressed by some of the students that I've been able to spend time with. I, I think the future is bright for this industry. And honestly, Brad, I hope they get to work with someone like you in their careers. I, I mean that. You made research fun. Sometimes research gets a bad rap. It can be dull, dry. You know, There's lots of numbers and data, but you made it all so very entertaining. I can listen to you for hours. I mean it. Just the way you talked about PNC Park and sitting on the third base line at a night game. That's the stuff, Brad. And that's why I wanted you on the show. You were a no-brainer. And I want to thank you for your time and generosity through the years. Well, uh, no, really, thank you so much. And Dennis, it's the same way. I've always enjoyed talking to you. We didn't even talk about uh, a certain A&E client that we had fun with. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. I was waiting for that. Uh, don't put me in that position. Come on. I want to take the high road with this podcast. But it was, it was done affectionately. It wasn't done maliciously. We were just joking around because there are days you don't, you know, you don't want to be at work all the time. You want to. You, you know, so you you are there, so you're kind of like in the same foxhole, and and let's have some fun while while we're doing it. And if you're not having fun, if you're not passionate about it, uh, do something else. Yeah, you know? but I I really appreciate those words, and I I feel the same way. And good luck with this thing. I couldn't think of anybody better to, and I meant that. I couldn't think of anybody to host a podcast. You you, you have a great radio voice, first of all. You know, you could have gone into being a a disc jockey or something. I know. I've, I've, I've been told that in the past that I've got that voice. I never liked my voice, but um, the more and more I've thought about it, it, it I, this is something I think I was born to do. It just took me a while to figure it out. And I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank my listeners who I failed to thank in my last episode uh, for, for listening. I mean, we're just getting this thing going and you know, I'm committed to it. I want to, I want to keep publishing every other week. That's the plan. And um, I want to have guests like Brad come on and talk about their careers and their accomplishments. And I really do appreciate everybody's time and support. And um, if you keep listening, I'll keep I'll keep recording. So that's that's the plan. So, uh, Brad, I will let you go. Thank you for your time. Um, real quickly, um, who's going to win the World Series next year? The Mets. They got Francisco Lindor at shortstop. You want me to say the Yankees, right? <laughs> it's OK. I know you're a Mets fan and uh, clearly they're spending money this offseason, which is nice to see. Uh, the Yankees, we'll see. You know, I'm happy they re-signed DJ LeMahieu. We needed him back. Um, maybe we'll have uh, another Subway series. <laughs> well, you know, for the first time, you know, the Mets owner has more money than any than the three other richest Major League Baseball owners combined. I did not so know that. Wow. He's got, like, he's he's got a he's 14 billion, 15 billion, whatever. And, you know, he's a Long Island kid like me, grew up a Mets fan. He's about my age, but exponentially more rich, rich. Yeah. And uh, the only owner that's richer than him of a major sports franchise is Steve Ballmer with the Clippers. Okay. You know, and that's it. So hopefully he will spend the money wisely. And who cares if you go over the uh, salary cap, whatever, whatever they call it in baseball, you know. He's got the, the lu money. The luxury tax, right? The yeah. luxury tax. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I, I like what he's going to do. He's going to have a big, you know, for Bobby Bonilla Day, you know, on July 1st, he, he sure. wants to give him a big check and, and, and march him around City Field and make it a big, you know, like you just won a million dollars. Only you would bring up the Bobby Bonilla contract. Um, any good Met fan knows what that contract's all about. Um, for the rest of you listeners, I'll just uh, let you go Google that one. It's, it's one of the crazy contracts in sports. Brad Adgate, I love talking with you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Great. Thanks, Dennis. Uh, Thanks, happy Brad. New Year and stay safe. Stay
Take care.